So what I say is like, I actually provide no value. What I've been building is a community and it's really the community that provides the value. It's not Jenny supporting a portfolio, it's a portfolio supporting a portfolio, right? Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Jenny Fielding, General Partner at The Fund, a first check venture fund and founder community like no other. They've invested in pre-seed rounds of 200 plus companies in four and a half years. She also is an adjunct professor at Columbia University, and she was the Managing Director of Techstars New York City for seven and a half years fair to say, Jenny Fielding has a ton of experience that she brings to this episode. Let's dive in. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Yes, I appreciate you taking the time. And I want to level set for people who are maybe not familiar. What are you up to today, Jenny? Because there's a lot of things you've done in the past and you've worked on. What are you doing today? What's the current kind of state of the union for Jenny? (laughs) Well, today I'm in New York City after a long... um, few weeks of travel, but um, I spend my days, uh, for the most part, working on a founder community um, called The Fund. So that's what I'm working on. We're a pre-seed fund. We've um, recently closed our third fund, and um, we're investing all over the world. I want to go back a little bit, because with The Fund, I've read a bunch about it and seen the different model. Take people through like what exactly that is, how that got started, and even your involvement with it as well, Jenny. Yeah. So um, originally started kind of as a passion project um, in New York City, the place that I am from where I built my two startups um, and where I live usually. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the kind of the hypothesis or or the thesis that we're working on was um, all these VCs out there throwing money, you know, every which way. But the truth was that, you know, founders and operators who are on the ground building companies are actually seeing really interesting deal flow even before the VCs. And so if you can tap into that kind of collective wisdom, um, you can really get some good coverage, shall we say, <laughs> have tentacles all over the ground um, into the early stage deal flow. And that's Um, It was a hypothesis that we tested out. We tested it out in a limited market, which was New York, uh, a big market, but still, um, you know, just one area. So our first fund was about $5 million. We had 50 founder and operator LPs, and we invested in 50 companies, all based in New York. So it was very kind of um, thesis driven in terms of, you know, geography, stage, et cetera. And then for our second fund, um, really happened organically. We had founders and operators around the world kind of hearing about our model by founders for founders and saying, hey, I think this would work really well here, fill in the blank location. <laughs> um, and so we kind of started scratching our head and saying, hey, how could we take this show on the road? And so fund two, we activated these founder communities, founder nodes um, in a number of locations, tend to be exact where we had, you know, connectivity um, and we kind of built up, you know, the muscle of investing in those locations. And so, yeah, fun too was in, you know, we had uh, venture partners that help us, you know, uh, kind of shepherd the deal flow in places like LA and London and Colorado and the Midwest. And then fun three, we've kind of done what we've done now on steroids over the last two funds. (laughs) 
by basically saying at this point, we have 500 founders and operators who are all of our LPs and that we can tap into really differentiated, interesting early stage deal flow globally. Taking a step back, the logistics behind this. So even going from like fund one, investing in a lot of companies in fund one in New York, going to 10 cities, this is a different animal. Just take me through what that entailed, like behind the scenes, like confirming people who wanted to help in different geographies, what would the setup be? Like, I find it fascinating. I'm just curious about how this actually worked and how you pulled this off. Yeah, well, um, you know, I basically started a startup and that startup was like, how do you build infrastructure, you know, globally to mm-hmm. enable folks on the ground to, um, you know, identify diligence and invest in companies. And I was able to stitch together a stack, for lack of a better term, um, things like AngelList, um, who is our back office, who really, you know, make this happen for us. Um, using simple tools like Slack and Airtable and whatnot. So we built the firm um, digital first, um, async, um, which is, you know, pretty different for venture funds um, in that, you know, we don't necessarily have like a Monday meeting where everyone gets together and um, we even virtually, like we do a lot of um, our, you know, our work kind of independently um, and vote on deals, you know, async on our Slack channel. So we kind of looked at what we thought worked in venture, didn't work in venture, and we tried to deconstruct that and then build the infrastructure that could support that. And so that's what we did over the last few years. Um, you know, when I say it, it sounds concise and easy, but it took <laughs> years, a lot of gray hair um, to kind of uh, operationalize, shall we say. Um, you know, the community, which is really, you know, hopefully what we're trying to build, which is this idea of, you know, community powered venture capital. Were there anything in particular you were looking for in the cities that you expanded to outside of New York? Like when you did decide that, okay, we did these investments in New York, this concept's interesting, people want to be involved. Were you just like, okay, we can do five cities, we can do 20 cities, we're going to do 10 cities. Like, you know what I mean? Because like, take me through that that piece of it, because I'm thinking my startup hats, like, okay, well, they wanted to expand. So how do they just decide which ones to go into or how that even works? Like, take me through that, that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was some great kind of strategic <laughs> that I could walk you through, but it really just okay. came down to like how many, you know, emails were in Jenny's inbox. And so when they would start coming in, like you know, I would love to do this in Australia. I like, I would delete the emails. I'd be like, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. That doesn't exist. I cannot launch a fund in Australia. But when you start getting, you know, kind of critical mass around a theme, I think any, you know, good founder starts leaning into, um, you know, where the pull is, right? And so we were, we were really just feeling pull in different communities saying, hey, like, there just isn't enough early stage. There aren't enough, you know, operators and founders on the ground um, investing, like this would really work here. And so it was really that the communities were the ones that made the compelling argument. And in, in a way I was, you know, the facilitator of it. Um, but I think the ecosystem spoke for themselves. Now, you know, our second place that we launched was Los Angeles. Obviously that's like a very, you know, we wouldn't call that like a tier five city. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's up there, I think in, in the top five as, you know, tech cities in the world. So these are places I think that um, had a lot of the bones of, of great eco, you know, tech ecosystems. Um, but we didn't launch in um, Northern California in the Bay Area, like for good reason, because we felt like, you know what? 
our capital wasn't really differentiated. There was, you know, tons of founders and operators already investing kind of in the next generation of founders, um, probably didn't need it there. So to a certain extent, we were thoughtful about it and we really just listened to, you know, where the poll was coming from, from these like, you know, disparate <laughs> founder communities around the, around the world. One thing about the structure too. So you mentioned funds, like fund one, fund two, fund three. There's all like everyone's an LP in the fund. Is that the structure? That yeah. versus like syndicates doing SPVs, that's different. Like why the fund structure, why that model? Just curious on how you're thinking about that side of things as well. Oh, we do. We have a syndicate as well and we do SPVs. Okay. In fact, um, in the last 12 months, we've um, spun up about 60 SPVs. So we're probably doing one, one, uh, a week actually. Um, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. I think that, um, we wanted to have ring fence capital, um, and ultimately our LPs, I think didn't want to pick and choose. They wanted to diversify their exposure and have a basket yeah. of, of startups. And I think we feel more comfortable with that. Um, with an SPV, you're kind of putting all your eggs in that, in one basket. And so, you know, we're very specific when we send out a deal, um, you know, that we encourage our LPs to make sure that they are properly diversified. These are all accredited people and many of them are, are quite active, sophisticated investors. But I think the benefit of investing in a fund is, is really the diversification, um, and the access, you know, that you get. Um, and then with an SPV, you're kind of putting the work back on, um, the, the, um, you know, the end user to say, you know, pick and choose. And so that's not, most of our LPs are founders, they're running their own companies, they're super busy, <laughs> yep. and they want exposure, they want to be part of the community, they don't necessarily want to like be digging through deal memos and deciding like, oh, is this the right one? So. <laughs> How did you, the, the 60 SPVs you've mentioned you've done, like who ends up doing those it's still is the same type of people same like founder like operators also doing spvs they just happen to want to be more hands-on with a particular deal here and there like what are you finding from that i'd say it's like a particular sector so people invest in our um fund which is broadly diversified you know we mostly invest across three verticals money health and work but you know we we're pretty much generalist um then we'll have uh, some of our LPs, founders and operators, uh, maybe they're building a healthcare company, they're passionate about health. And so when they see a deal that's a little further along, potentially it's been de-risked, there's an opportunity for them to double down on that. They've watched the company because we only do SPVs and companies that you know we've invested in previously. Um, and so it's an opportunity for them to kind of double down on some of the spaces that they're um, passionate about. And um, so we've definitely see that where, you know, I'll have a note, hey, if there's, um, you know, if there's a fintech company in Africa, like make sure that I see the SPV because I'm interested in doubling down. Mm. Okay. There's so much to dive into, but one of the things you mentioned earlier is the like 10 cities, fun two, to basically world domination, fun three. Take me through that evolution, what that looks like, at, like how, how this thing expands, where the fun gets to. I'm just curious on how you're looking at that and even the evolution from fund two to fund three? Yeah. So, um, you know, we're not in the business of expansion for expansion purposes. We've, um, you know, my co-founder and I have both been part of organizations that we felt um, weren't um, exactly thoughtful uh, about that and kind of got into some trouble. So 
um, we now are able to invest everywhere. And we were able to do that by very slowly and thoughtfully building these kind of nodes of connectivity around the world over the last four and a half years. And now, um, you know, we say we invest everywhere, but, you know, now let's call it um, you know, 25 or 30 geographies that we've got some critical mass, of, meaning we have people on the ground, founders on the ground who are looking at deals, et cetera. Um, and so it seems fast, but honestly, it's a four and a half year journey, um, you know, coupled with all the work that I did prior because, you know, previous to running the fund, I ran Techstars New York for seven and a half years. Um, and I was, you know, really kind of building communities around the world. So, Honestly, this has been like an eight-year journey of mine, um, you know, all with the same thesis, which is, you know, innovation is everywhere. You know, why should capital be constrained? Um, and we should be going to where the innovation is, right? The capital should be going to where it is. And so, you know, little baby steps um, that have now enabled us to invest everywhere, um, which is what we uh, do in our, in our third fund, um, which... Probably will end up being 70% North America, 30% rest of world, um, with more of a focus on Europe, Africa, and Latin. You touched on a little bit the, the thesis. You said a generalist, but you also mentioned three of the themes there. Take me through what you're looking for in terms of the companies, uh, areas you're excited about. Uh, I'm curious about that too. Yeah, so we took kind of a data-driven approach, which was we'd invested in over 200 companies. Um, and so we like crunched all the numbers and we're like, all right, you got 200 companies. Um, where are the outliers coming from? And directionally, they fell into these three buckets, money. So, um, you know, FinTech, Web3, um, you know, things around commerce, et cetera, um, fall into the, the money bucket. Um, health, mostly digital health, wellness, um, a few other topics within that. And then uh, work, obviously a topic that you guys um, know well, um, automation, productivity um, kind of falls falls into that as well. And so that's really where we saw the outliers of fund one and fund two. And we said, okay, fund you know, three, now that we're full time. So this, you know, the big change is we went full time. Um, and we write larger checks now. So we write checks up to 250K. Um, and, you know, concentrated essentially in those verticals. With being at Techstars for a number of years, you had that experience. You talked about the, the growth side here now with how you're looking at the fund and growing and not trying to make mistakes per se in growth, which is hard because growing always is mistakes being made, I guess, as you're growing anything. Uh, just take me through like how you're thinking about growth a little bit more in depth around geographies you expand into or don't expand into like areas you expand into don't expand into like just anything around that in terms of how you're thinking about growth because i think there's a lot of i asked that because there's a lot of either investors who are thinking about expanding or who have expanded to other geographies there's founders who same thing if they have a geography base they might expand to other uh locations potentially just how have you thought through growth in a kind of a strategic way for the fund yeah so um you know in general if you tell someone that we're two general partners and we have a portfolio of 230 companies, they kind of look at you and say, well, how do you, you know, how do you do that? Right? How do you provide value? And every yeah. VC runs around saying like, we provide value. So what I say is like, I actually provide no value. Um, what I, what I've been building is a community and it's really the community that provides the value. So instead of a one-to-many model, which is how venture capital is set up and how we think of it as somewhat, um, flawed, 
um, that just doesn't give like a ratio that makes sense or that's that's achievable. And so the way that we think of it is this many to many model, right? Where it's not Jenny supporting a portfolio, it's a portfolio supporting a portfolio, right? It's 500 founders and operators who've all given us cash, who all believe in the mission of the fund, who believe in paying it forward, who want to be part of something bigger than themselves, helping this portfolio. And so we don't honestly in um, we don't really distinguish so much between who's a portfolio founder and who's a LP founder. It's like they're all founders in our community. They're all interacting on our Slack channel. They're all coming to our events. They're all part of our CRM. And so we try to kind of create this many to many model. So what does that have to do with the question that you asked about expansion? Well, when you create this kind of many to many you just have connectivity, um, you have broader connectivity, you've created a web that interacts much more seamlessly, right? So if we have a company that's a banking as a service company and it comes in from Africa, it comes in from, from Sao Paulo, it comes in from Austin, Texas, it doesn't really matter because we can like quickly kind of diligence the space, diligence the founders, um, and get to some type of semblance of understanding of the business and the people behind it quickly using this community, right? And so the way that we think about expansion is can we rapidly do that with a company in that location or in that vertical using the community that we have? So if I was to take a space that we actually really don't invest in is like biotech, I mean, sure, we have a few people that invest in biotech and look at it, but it's not something that I could use my, my process, my funnel to quickly get at the answer of like, are we investing or not? Um, the way that we're able to make quick decisions is through our unique um, diligencing model, um, which is about using this community, right? So in topics and in, and in countries and areas that we just don't have connectivity, it's much harder for us to do that. So that's why we had to kind of grow organically. And so if you were to say, you know, you know, looking at a company in a place that we actually just don't have those communities, it would be out of our sweet spot. It would be much harder for us to get to conviction. To that point, you mentioned the diligence model. Like what does that look like when you have all these different people that have different experiences and, and expertise and everything? How do you leverage them to handle diligence, to take care of diligence, to do a great job knowing you have all these people at your disposal. Like how does that even work for the fund? Yeah. So imagine a company in kind of digital health, um, you know, comes into our orbit and it comes in from one of our founder operators who, you know, is located say in Berlin. Um, so that company before it even kind of gets to me kind of goes through our funnel, which would be like, it would Quickly, we could, you know, send it out to 50 of our founder operator LPs who are all on Slack channel. Um, hey, guys, like we just, you know, met this company. What do you all think about this space? And within an hour, you know, maybe uh, a third of them get back to us with some really thoughtful points, right? Like, oh, Jenny, shouldn't even look at this. There are a million of these or this is super interesting. Or actually, I know the founders. Um, I've been watching the space, right? So you get all kinds of data. And oftentimes those uh, people like want to interact with the company. They want to learn more. And so it's kind of this um, outsourced diligence model where we let the community kind of, you know, um, ruminate on many of these um, ideas and, and companies before it even gets to the point of like, okay, is Jenny going to talk to them and, and start digging in? 
right? And then on top of that, we've got about 36 venture partners around the world. Um, and those people are also kind of shepherding the communities where they live as well. So it's kind of an added um, layer of, um, of, of diligence there. So we can do that around verticals. We can do that around geographies and basically quickly triangulate, like, is this a company we want to dig in on? And we can get the answers that we need quickly. Um, we're a pre-seed fund, so we're not spending six months diligencing companies. We're often <laughs> making quick decisions in a few weeks' time. And so, you know, at any given point, we probably have 20 companies that are kind of in this funnel, um, you know, going through our informal diligence process. What's nice for the founder is their experience, you know, on the flip side is pretty, like, nice because they're meeting all these other founders and operators who... <laughs> are offering to connect them into other people. And so, you know, oftentimes, whether we invest or not, they've had like a experience, you know, a positive experience. They've made some new friends or some new connections. <laughs> um, and so, you know, hopefully it's, um, it's much less burdensome than other diligence processes. Yeah. And even them, like the founders that are meeting you, even if they don't invest, they maybe they refer other founders because they like the process. They find it helpful. Like that obviously it seems to be really helpful for what you want to accomplish as well. You mentioned venture partners though. I think everyone, there's like so many different definitions and people like just kind of use it differently. What is a venture partner for the fund? Like what do they do? Yeah. So first of all, they're all LPs. Um, so they all have given us money um, and they're all founders and operators, you know, running their businesses and they dedicate, you know, a few hours a week to, um, you know, being part of this community, which involves, you know, helping diligence deals, identifying deals, um, ultimately, you know, helping with investment decisions, bill memos, um, and then support of the portfolio. So it's pretty lightweight. It's very, um, you know, synergistic with what they're usually doing anyway. Many of them are, you know, part-time angel investors. And so it kind of gives a little bit more formality to um, some of the activities they're already doing. And, um, you know, many of them like it because, just to be an angel kind of out there randomly, um, you know, you don't necessarily get the diversification we were talking about and you don't necessarily know, like, am I any good at this when you're kind of just <laughs> doing it yourself? Whereas, you know, here you're kind of getting, you know, feedback from a larger um, pool of, of people. We're going to take a question from Twitter. So Julie McDonald, she asked, uh, what distinguishes the best CEO she's ever worked with? Uh, I'll just leave that to you. What distinguishes the best CEOs you've ever worked with? Or have invested in. I mean, when we invest in companies, I think we look for, you know, we look for three things. Um, you know, we look for founders that kind of have a secret about, you know, the market. Um, they see a vision that isn't exactly there yet. Um, they're kind of tough as nails, super resilient, like this is going to be a 10 year grind. Um, so I think we look for that resilience. And then I think the last thing is what distinguishes, you know, a good from a great CEO, and that's really the learning mindset. So being super open to data, um, ability to move fast, but really just being, you know, open to that kind of feedback. And so, you know, the founders that I think have gotten themselves in some trouble that I've seen over the last eight years is, um, you know, they're super passionate about, you know, their whatever they're building. And oftentimes, you know, they put on the blinders. Whereas the great CEOs, like they're just taking their data machines, they're just taking in data, iterating and um, and processing quickly in real time. And so I've just seen these extraordinary pivots that happen fast. Right. Um, and to me, that makes the difference between a good CEO and a great CEO. It's interesting because I just interviewed the founder of Beehive, uh, CEO of Beehive, uh, email newsletter pl platform, email platform and 
the data piece of it was talked about a, a lot in the episode. I, so I just, I'm thinking about it right now, how quickly they iterate on it. So we'll see how it plays out. But as of now, I'm really curious how it's going to go. Because to your point, like they're always analyzing and they move so quickly to launch new features and everything. So uh, based on what customers are saying, so we'll see how that plays out. But it's top of mind because I just, just saw that. One other thing I'm curious about, because I saw this on Twitter from what you had posted. Uh, I'm going to just read, read the tweet you had. Love you founders, but small pre-seed rounds that you and your price insensitive angels priced at 10 million valuations are not going to fly right now. Sorry. This is November, 2022. We're recording this episode. What are your thoughts on valuations today, Jenny? Just curious. And people did not like that quote. I know. <laughs> <laughs> being really harsh. Um, you know, I am a multi-time founder. I have a lot of empathy for founders. I've invested in hundreds of them. So yep. it wasn't really meant to be snarky. Um, but it was meant to say that like the world has changed and I think, you know, people kind of need to get with that. Um, and so in the last few years, we've seen these kind of um, self-priced rounds. Um, and so the the thing people were focused on in that tweet was funny, was like the 10 million. It doesn't matter if it's 5 million, 10 million, 20 yeah. million, whatever that number is for you. Um, you know, everyone has a different threshold. For me, it's kind of the 10 million mark, right? When I see founders just going out there with not a lot and saying like, I'm going to price this at a 15 million. And so I think many have gotten away with that the last few years and now um, just less so. And so I think if you have um, an investor who wants to price it and put in, you know, a, a chunky uh, amount of cash, then um, that's going to be easier to stomach than a founder who just says, oh, you know, I think I'm going to, you know, do it at a 15. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the heat I got was totally fine. Um, <laughs> I thought it was funny that those things kind of like people start arguing with each other on the thread, nothing to do with me. Um, yeah, but of course. But it wasn't really meant from a, a lack of empathy or, you know, it wasn't really meant to be as snarky as it came off. It was more like, these are just different times and we all need to adjust. So. Yeah, that's fair. I, one thing with, with all the different venture partners you have, LPs you have, like uh, investors that are leading these different geographies as well, their experience. I'm just curious on what you think makes for a great investor, uh, people who have shown, obviously there's a track record of investments that have done well, but like anything you think that makes for a great investor, because I know there's people who are thinking about getting investing or angels who are operators right now want to get into investing. Any advice you have for people who are want to improve, become a better investor, because you've done it for a number of years and been on the founder side as well. Just anything on that you'd like to share with people? Well, here's one data point. So, you know, I learned how to invest at Techstars and the Techstars model is buy low, sell high, right? So we go <laughs> in a very low entry point um, and hopefully, you know, sell at a much, much higher one. So through that um, over seven and a half years, I learned a lot of discipline, right? There were a lot of companies I couldn't invest in and it was, it was heartbreaking, but I definitely learned discipline. And so, you know, that's why we have kind of the $10 million, you know, threshold is that we just stay disciplined. Um, when I was raising my fund three, it was not a great time to raise a fund. It was the spring. Um, and one of the, the folks that gave us, you know, one of the largest checks said, you know, one of the reasons we're investing in you is like, we looked at your numbers and 2020 and 2021, like you guys didn't invest over a 10 million valuation. Like, how did you do that? You made dozens and dozens <laughs> of investments and no one else in our portfolio seemed to be able to do that. And I said, you know, I had a lot of heartbreak like everyone else. There were so many deals I wanted to do that I couldn't. But, you know, again, my training was all about just staying disciplined. And so it's my job to kind of find the gems. So I'd say to any aspiring investor that, you know, your job isn't to just, you know, tag along with some, you know, A16Z scout, 
like your real job is to go as an early stage investor, like go find those gems out there, right? Um, go help founders. And um, I think that, you know, if you do that, you can still get in at attractive valuations, which then will make the math just a lot better for you. As a small fund, we have to always be thinking about the math, what returns the fund with, with a small check. Um, and we just don't go for logos, right? We're, we don't get into deals just because it's a hot deal or there's a hot co-investor. And so we just stay, you know, stick with our discipline. So that's what I'd say to anyone starting out is just, um, you know, whatever your thesis is, like, you know, just try to stick with it because it's painful, but you'll be rewarded. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned that because it's so many times where you see those deals are they're just not quite there, and you're like, "I would love to, but we can't," uh, it, which is hard, especially in this current market. Yeah, you know, it was hard. 2020 and 2021 were hard for a small fund that was stayed so disciplined, and you know, even even our fund, like we crept up in our valuation because you know because we had to as well. But you have to kind of, you know, stick to your guns and really understand your model. I mean, I guess if you're an angel, there's no model, so you're probably okay. But if you're a microfund, I saw a lot of microfunds writing 100K checks into rounds at 20 million valuations. I don't know how to make that math work. So, you know, please call me. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of doing it for logos. And there might be good reasons, you know, to do that. Um, But it's just very hard, you know, with these small checks to to um, return funds and, and have a good outcome for your LPs. Yeah. As we kind of like move to the next phase of this, this interview, I'm always curious about trends and what you're seeing and what you're excited about. So I just want to ask that. What are you most excited about? Any trends you're seeing that you're really excited about or areas? I know you talked about the areas you, you invest in, but anything within that that you're just like, yeah, these things are interesting. I'm watching. I'm curious about uh, anything with there as well, Jenny. Yeah. um, You know, we love healthcare. We love, you know, any industry that's highly regulated that's moving (laughs) the world forward. So that's why we like fintech. We like healthcare. Um, You know, I think some of those areas have gotten pretty saturated the last few years. So the trend that I'm excited about is like a lot of those companies potentially won't work out or a lot of those founders will kind of find other things to do with their time. And I think some really interesting companies are going to be built now um, while Talent is plentiful, right? So a lot of people are, um, there's a lot more talent. It's a lot easier and and less expensive. Um, So I'm excited for people that are building in those spaces and regulated areas that need um, innovation, right? And so they're kind of struggling against against some of the regulatory um, frameworks that are starting, you know, hopefully to to loosen up. Um, And so, you know, digital health is is a great one. So we saw during the pandemic, things like HIPAA and and the like, you know, started to kind of loosen up and that allowed things like telemedicine and some of the other trends that that we're super excited about. So yeah, telemedicine, I think, you know, kind of got an early start a few years ago was a little bit of a disappointment and then really blossom during um, the pandemic. I think we're going to see, you know, more incredible use cases of people just getting, you know, better service as some of the other regulatory, um, you know, barriers start to, to loosen. So um, it always excited about um, highly regulated industries because they need the most innovation. I'm selfishly going to ask about the work trends you're excited about as well. <laughs> Anything in the work you're curious about, interested in, excited about? <laughs> I mean, work is is fascinating. I feel like um, I think that we've pretty much settled on this kind of, you know, future of work is is a hybrid, right? And that it's much more yeah. personalized to the 
individual, right? And that some individuals working from home is going to make sense. And for some working part-time in an office is going to make sense. So I feel like post-pandemic, we've kind of settled on this new, um, you know, comfortable um, place of, of hybrid. I think during this, you know, recessionary environment, the thought that companies are going to be spending a lot of money on offices is probably just not going to happen. So I think that, you know, there's still more incentive to kind of keep people in these like hybrid modalities, which is like how I've always worked and enjoyed, you know, work, which is like part-time in an office, part-time not. And like, I think offsites and opportunities to kind of gather and have meaningful interactions for a few days at a time is like, is, is the most exciting. So um, I really think that, you know, as, as we go forward, you know, spending quality time in chunks with, you know, colleagues is a way to really, you know, build those bonds authentically. Um, and so I'm excited about that. And, you know, we've looked at a lot of companies that are kind of facilitating those types of experiences. So um, on the kind of work side, it's one of the areas I'm, I'm excited about. On that note, with what the fund inherently is, and it's spread out so, so much, do you... I mean, do you organize in-person events ever for the community? Are you like actively trying to go see people in different areas? Cause you know, it's like you have these partners with the fund all over. Like, how do you approach that personally? Like yourself? Yeah, we do incredible number of events. Um, and so a few every month, actually. So we have a, a wonderful head of community, um, who's based in Boston and comes out of mass challenge, which is a very, um, kind of analogous um, organization, very founder focused. Um, and so we're hosting events kind of around the world with our community who really enjoy coming together, um, meeting each other, sharing a meal, having, you know, meaningful conversations. Um, and what's really fun about our events is that they're really open for anyone, you know, in the fun community. So, um, you know, if we do an event in San Francisco, it's like we never exactly know who's passing through San Francisco. So we <laughs> had those there. And I mean, we had um, an LP that was uh, one of our founder LPs who's in Boulder, who happened to be in town, a few people from New York, um, a few from LA. It was like, you know, people just kind of like show up at our events because they happen to be there. So I think that the nature of like work in life where we're all so many places kind of transcends this. I live here. I'm going to be at this event. And we love that. So we're basically, you know, in any place can kind of like, you know, have an event and have part of our community, you know, show up there. And so those, you know, connecting the dots across um, geographies, IRL, I think is, yeah. is pretty simple because um, then those people kind of get to meet. And so the community just grows stronger. So definitely in-person events or, you know, it's part of our, um, our DNA and our, our history. Um, and so now doing it at a global scale has been, has been super fun. Yeah. We just did our first event for Vitalize Angels in New York city last week. And mm -hmm. we want to do more of these, like, I don't know, member led events in different cities. We do see the value of IRL, like people actually coming together and trying to figure out what that strategy looks like and everything. But I, I just think to your point, like people want to be together. They want to come together. You never know who's in what city, but people want to have that in-person component in some capacity, even if it's like monthly or whatever. Uh, I, so I think the value, so if you're running a community that's online and you can get people together in person at some point, I just see the value of that. It, it makes a lot of yeah. sense. I mean, we hosted an event um, in uh, Lisbon um, as part of Web Summit 
And um, two of our LPs, who are founder operators, um, live there, and they basically hosted it, you know, with us for us. And so, so by kind of empowering the the community to, you know, to co-host, um, you just get a lot of leverage, right? We actually hosted at a haunted palace. Like, when would I be able to access a haunted palace in Lisbon? But our LPs. <laughs> Um, you know, know all about this place, know the know the owners, and we're able to kind of hook it up for us. So you really are able to kind of tap into really special kind of localized intel um, by utilizing, you know, your community. And so at that event, I mean, there were plenty of people from New York and from, from all over um, from our community that were happened to be, you know, at Web Summit. So um, yeah, we, we love that model. I'm gonna to have to talk to Larissa, our community manager, who gets some other venues for these for these events. Yeah. If you're doing that, <laughs> definitely like a high bar for us. So um, yeah, <laughs> just another Tuesday, right? Just another event day, whatever. Just a you know casual thing. Okay, I want to take a giant step back because you're two two time entrepreneur, but then you've been at TechStars. Now you've been with the fund. The transition from entrepreneur founder to you're still like a founder, so it's but you're on the VC side of it, like. Why that transition? And are you are you content with that? What, do you, you love that? Do you want to ever go back to full-time founder, operator in that way, which you kind of are still, so I can't really say you're not, but like, just take me through that, that like thought. I mean, the big secret about being, you know, a micro fund, um, you know, general partner, as you probably know, is that mm-hmm. it's much more similar to being a startup founder than it is if I was like, you know, an investor at Bessemer. I mean, that's just the truth, right? True. If I'm an investor at Bessemer, you know, I'm probably spending most of my time, you know, investing in companies with my portfolio. I'm probably not spending a lot of time raising because there's way better people there that know how to do that. Um, I'm probably not spending a bunch of time figuring out who our back office is because they've sorted it out, right? So, I mean, being an emerging manager is being a CEO again, and that's the position I love to be in, right? So I wear a lot of hats. So I spend 25% of my time investing in new deals. I spend 25% of my time with my portfolio, 25% of my time with my LPs and raising new capital, and then 25% of the time making sure the lights stay up and the garbage gets taken out because (laughs) someone's got to do it, right? Um, Working with our back office, managing our team, all that kind of stuff. So that's another 25%. That's a lot of 25%. So, um, you know, basically, I love the diversity of it. Um, And, you know, if I just wanted to be an investor, I would have a much easier go just like, you know, going and being, uh, you know, an investor at a big venture fund. Um, So I find it much more similar um, to, you know, running my startup. I will say, you know, for any VC who like tells you, oh my God, it's such hard work and they're so exhausted. It's nothing compared to running a company. And I don't really have to worry about not making payroll. It's like, I kind of know the money is coming in. We don't have a lot of it, like, you know, so I don't know. I think it's like the dream job. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, how did I get this job? This was really, (laughs) really lucky. Um, I think it's an amazing job, but it is more like being, um, you know, a CEO of a startup to tell you the truth. And and you guys know it too, because, you know, we're, we're, we're running the same (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it is interesting uh, to talk to Gail at, at Vitalize all the time and have her say that same type of thing in terms of it being like, yeah, I'm running a startup that invests in other startups. Like that's basically what it is. Like the, as an emerging manager, it's a, it, it's very much so startup feel. Uh, but to your point, yes, you don't have to worry about the payroll in the same way of like <laughs> sales. I, mean, I, Gail, I would say only one in four of our conversations is like about a startup or a new company, right? The other yeah. parts of our conversation are about something infrastructure wise or something team-wise or something, you know, LP-wise or all these things. And so, you know, there's just so much, there's so much to do. Um, And that's also why it it just is fun. And it's like, you know, it's new every day because you're like, okay, what, what new challenge am I going to experience today as I, you know, as I open my, my computer and and figure out where, where the problems are. So um, (laughs) I think is actually really fun. It is funny because like even on my end, when I'm thinking about all the stuff we're doing, like we, we, we have like a newsletter, for instance, that we've, we've sold sponsorships before. We've made money off of that. Like you think about other ways we can like be scrappy as an emerging like manager, early stage fund where you could like, oh, if we want to bring on, bring someone else on the team. Well, if we found a way to make money some other way, like on my end, like to help out somebody else, like the newsletter, that'd be interesting. We're already doing it anyways. Like let's get sponsors for it. So like the creativity evolved. It very much so is a startup thing. Like you don't forget your core business, which is like find the best founders possible, but also you're like, well, to do that, if we could hire more people and help in some other way. So it is just a fun kind of game. It's a lot of work to be clear, but it is a fun thing to be a, a part of as well. And it's like kind of a mind shift. So when you're running a startup, it is really your job to be the expert in that space and to learn as much as you possibly can about your space, about the landscape, about the competition. And so like, you've just got to like know everything about your business. Yeah. When you're an investor, like, you know, especially a generalist like me, I mean, I'm always the dumbest person in the room. If I'm not, then something's wrong, right? Every time a a founder pitches me, I'm like, okay, got to learn about this whole new thing, right? So it is kind of a mind shift in that, like, you're literally going from the person that really kind of is, is an expert in this space to someone, I mean, unless you're a VC who's just like highly specialized, but yeah. really, you know, the founders know so much more than you do. And so I'd say that's one of the biggest differences is like letting go, <laughs> letting go of that idea that I need to know everything that like, you know, it's my job is to be in control. And honestly, it's the founder's job to be in control. And it's my job to analyze the founder characteristics, the founder interactions and decide, am I putting my trust, my money, uh, my time and energy into this individual? So um, it's a little bit more, uh, I think on the psychology side, <laughs> it definitely is. Uh, where is the best place for founders to reach out, connect with you if they'd like to as well? Yeah. I mean, you control me on Twitter, you know, tell me you know, <laughs> <laughs> that that's fine. A J.E. Fielding. Um, that's always fun. Um, you can shoot me an email if you've got something, you know, you want to present to me, J at the fund.vc. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm always out and about. So, um, people find me. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Jane, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so happy you came on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day and I'll talk to you in the next episode.